Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Sigourney Weaver is on a galaxy quest with Chappie. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and look, I have one lousy job on this podcast. It's dumb, but I'm gonna do it, okay? And I am Adam Thomas, and you cannot understand me without subtitles. That's true, and for the podcast medium, that's great. It really fucking sucks for everybody, yeah. <laughs> for sure. But Adam, we're not the only ones here, because we do have a special guest with us here. Uh, he is a filmmaker, and we're glad to have him on the show. It's uh, Mr. Addison Binnick. Addison, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're, we're glad to have you on. And, uh, you know, we gave you a list of topics you could potentially guest on, and you ended up uh, picking tonight's topic of Sigourney Weaver, which we should mention we're doing uh, in honor of Avatar The Way of Water is coming out. Adam is so excited. Adam is so pumped. Can't wait to see it in mass in all its three-hour, ten-minute 3D glory. I'm sure, Adam. Well, I, I, I was kind of surprised that she's even in the movie. I mean, I looked it up myself earlier today, and I was like, wait a minute. I mean, she's playing a different character. You know, obviously, we don't know who it's going to be. Well, what's interesting is that we do actually kind of know what that's what I'm fascinated about. Is apparently, she's yeah. playing, like, the teenage daughter of Jake Sully and Natiri. Oh, she is? Which is really weird. I had no idea. And if it doesn't make, like, $300 billion or whatever the fuck, it's going to tank. Which, I don't know. Maybe it will. Who knows? We'll, right. we'll find why, out. You know, why did they give the Avatars working genitalia? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> he shouldn't be able to have kids. Eh, whatever. Whatever, whatever. Of course, it doesn't matter, because Adam will be the one person who refuses to see it on principle. Uh, but... At the same time, Adam, uh, you're at least glad that we're able to talk about Miss Sigourney Weaver as a topic because of that movie, obviously, right? You're a fan, I'm assuming, of Miss Weaver. Yeah, Sigourney Weaver's great, man. I've been a fan ever since I was a youngin'. Uh, I don't remember the first thing I saw her in. I don't think it was Alien or Aliens. Um, My bet is Ghostbusters, right? It was probably Ghostbusters, more than likely. I mean, it could have been Working Girl, but I think it was Ghostbusters. Yeah, and uh, what do you uh, really like about Weaver? What makes her stick out to you? It's not just obviously Ellen Ripley, but in her long illustrious career, what does sort of like uh, made her so uh, last so long in the public consciousness since Alien onward? She's just got such a like um a vibe to her, like a real strong female like lead vibe. She never feels like she's just being pigeonholed into the, the stereotypical female role. I mean, even in our good feature we're talking about, that's sort of the point of her role, where she's not just that, that she's, there's so much more to her. And I think she's sort of brought that to every role she's ever been in. There's always sort of sort of strength or even like, as she's gotten older, a, like a sense of authority to her uh, that just really, really works. She's always, she's always reliable. I can't think of one time I've seen Sigourney Weaver in something that I didn't really like her. Uh, you know, there's some stinkers out there, but she's typically always turns into a pretty solid performance. Yeah, and what about you, Addison? Why did you all want to come on specifically for Weaver as a topic? 
no matter what movie she's in, even if like the material isn't great or the premise isn't very great, she'll give it her all. You know, like from the get-go in Alien, you know, that movie was one of her very earliest, but she's definitely a force to be reckoned with in that film. And that has not gone away, you know, in the 40 plus years of her being in movies. And she's only gotten cooler and, you know, more of a badass and everything like that. Like if she popped up in another Alien movie, you know, it's been, what, 25 years since Alien Resurrection. And if she popped up in another one, and I'm sure we'd all welcome her with open arms. She paved the way for a lot of people like that. For sure, yeah, though I think what I like about Weaver is the fact that she didn't really rest on the laurels of just doing genre. I think she kind of embraced that a bit more in recent years. But at the same time, I just like the real diversity in her career where obviously she starts in Aliens. And then she goes into doing like stuff like Ghostbusters, which also fits in genre. And I think on paper, I don't think that character is necessarily that interesting. And I think she brings a lot more to it than is on the page, quite frankly. Um, but then with like a lot of the other movies that she's done, like in between, you know, like we mentioned Working Girl or like Gorillas in the Mist, it's just like she has such a wide variety in terms of what she likes doing and especially uh, like the comedy element, which we'll be talking about here for sure, um, is, is definitely there. I think she just has a lot more range than I think, you know, a lot of people might give her credit for because she's so known as Ripley. Just a movie that like I'm not going to really like recommend in other places, but like I, I saw recently I thought was fun was like Heartbreakers from 2001, which is her and Jennifer Love Hewitt as, like, con artist, like, daughter and uh, mother, and it's such a great, like, fun turn for her. She shows off the fact that, like, she is not just one type of, like, action hero or, uh, you know, quote-unquote, like, strong female character. No, that's, that's definitely true. When she's in four movie franchises and stuff like that, and she keeps popping up in Ghostbusters cameos, you know, uh, it's hard to shake that, but she definitely has been in plenty of other fun stuff. For sure, for sure. Um, but uh, specifically, we'll be talking about two movies that, if you're new, uh, Adam and I usually uh, cover a good and a bad feature we picked at the end of the previous episode. Uh, so we'll be talking about, um, the, in this case, my bad pick of Chappie, and then Adam's good pick of Galaxy Quest, though credit to our patrons over at patreon.com slash tedbpod, who voted in a poll for that particular one to win, and uh, more on the Patreon a bit later in the show. But let's go ahead and get started with our double feature here with Chappy. Hello again. Uh, so it's day 944. I'm extremely close now to creating the world's first machine that can think and feel. like a child it has to learn i do believe the problem with artificial intelligence is it's way too unpredictable this is a new step in evolution i am consciousness i am alive i am jeppy destroy that robot burn it to ash where are you going mate i don't want to die So uh, Chappie came out on March 6, 2015 from director-co-writer Neil Blomkamp, who we've kind of referenced Blomkamp a lot on the show, but this is the first time we've ever covered one of his movies. And the sort of career trajectory of Blomkamp is so fascinating, especially to have like lived through it, because uh, obviously he started off with, like, he did some short films, 
early on uh, in his native South Africa, and then eventually uh, made District 9, which was a, a really interesting sleeper hit that came out um, from, you know, it was produced by Peter Jackson, and in August of 2009, it was definitely a movie that, like, nobody had on their radar, and then all of a sudden became a surprise massive success and was nominated for a bunch of Oscars, and then she's made uh, three more feature films after that, but the quick succession of, um, you've got Elysium in 2013, and then Chappie in 2015, uh, just sort of shows, like, the, uh, the degradation that's there from like, oh, this guy's like the new wonderkind, he's going to be one of our new great filmmakers, to um, everyone at least rejecting whatever his career trajectory was at that point is, I, I just think it's so fascinating to see. And I think, Adam, you would generally agree with that, right? Oh, yeah, man, for sure. Definitely. It's kind of wild. Like you said, he was sort of after District 9 and it, where it found its success, he was like the guy. I mean, any big sci-fi thing. And still, even sometimes to this day, that's announced, uh, he, he's tied to almost instantly. I mean, there was, what, Halo and then Alien. and I think RoboCop as well. He was at one point attached to like a Yeah, RoboCop. That's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That makes and, sense. I mean, after watching Chappie, it's like that's basically just like an it feels like an audition tape. Yeah, for a robot. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely sure. his like flexing his RoboCop muscles. But I think that probably came out after the RoboCop remake, if I'm not mistaken. Well, no, but it was going to be one of those because like like Alien, like his attempted Alien reboot, it was going to be one of those like soft reboots where they would bring back like either Sigourney Weaver or Peter Weller, and it was going to be like an actual sequel to the original. That's what he would at least pitched. Yeah, yeah, that he yeah. was going to do. Sort of like the, the return of RoboCop or something like that. Right, this is the real RoboCop sequel everyone would have wanted. Um, but yeah. because of the uh, box office disappointments of Elysium and then especially uh, with uh, Chappie, sort of the, the critical drubbing and box office stuff, um, didn't make either of those uh, happen. I guess, um, and uh, I'm very curious, Addison. You said you had uh, watched this for the first time. Uh, shortly yeah. before we started the show, so yeah. I'm curious, uh, what are your general thoughts about Chappie? At the time when it came out, uh, I did I skipped it because I, I too thought it looked bad. I didn't even know he had directed it because like it totally felt like District Nine, but I was like, okay, somebody ripped off the style of District Nine and then like melded it with RoboCop. I kind of liked it for most of it until the ending. I thought the ending was pretty preposterous and it totally kind of ruined everything else, but it was still entertaining. It was still entertaining for the most part. And I thought the special effects were really good. Um, Sigourney Weaver was greatly underused. I don't really understand why they hired her to just be like the boss of the company. Like that kind of seemed like a throwaway role. Yeah, it was, it was once they started like having the robot, you know, zipping subconsciousness around into other robots and stuff. I was like, okay, this is kind of dumb now. You know, that's, that's where it sort of lost me because then when like the maker is now a robot himself, he doesn't even question it. He's just like, okay, I'm here now. This is what I am now. Like there was really no sort of self-reflection of like, what has happened here? What have I done? It felt, felt very, very rushed. And to find out that it was the first movie of like a, a planned trilogy is kind of insane. Um, yeah. <laughs> like that's what James Cameron's plan was for Avatar. But I mean, that movie came out of the gate making, you know, $2 billion or whatever. Well, and plus, I mean, he'd made Titanic before that, right? As opposed to coming off of, especially yes. like Elysium. It just feels definitely presumptuous. Just like, no, we're going to keep going. This is my, my franchise. I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing chappies. Like what are your credentials for like making a trilogy to something like you, your first movie has to be 
like successful, you know, for you to earn a trilogy. Like, what are you thinking? And then it just, you know, now it just is going to exist as this one-off movie sort of with a cliffhanger that's never going to get paid off. No, for sure. And I guess I want to address the Sigourney Weaver at all, because you kind of mentioned even off mic about like, it seems weird to use this as a bad Weaver pick. And I think part of the reason why I picked it is because like, this was a recurring thing in the 2010s for Weaver, where she would kind of use her sort of like uh, genre credentials to pop up in these movies. Like people would kind of use like, oh, we have a bit of cred for like sci-fi horror anybody fans because we got Sigourney Weaver in here. Like I'm thinking Paul also did this. There's another movie that Adam is going to talk about later on in the show that I think did a similar thing and did it much better than most of the other ones. Even with the most recent Ghostbusters movies, I feel like they kind of have a similar thing with her, which is like, hey, look, we got Weaver, right? She's here, so that makes us a bit cool. (laughs) It's more of a flex, more of a, hey, look at this, than it is like, a meaningful role. Yeah. It's a lot of in her office just kind of being like, these robots are great for like the police force. It's pretty awesome. Oh, Hugh Jackman, what are you doing here? Oh no, Jappy's attacking. <laughs> and it's like, there's not a lot for her to do necessarily, but no, um, no, I mean, that's a totally thankless role. I mean, she has yeah. three or four scenes total, like saying no to the initial pitch of making Chappie sentient. And then, like, maybe two other scenes in the movie where she talks to Hugh Jackman, where he convinces her to activate, you know, the big moose robot. And then at the end, when she's running out of the building because Chappie is, you know, just busted in, is throwing Hugh Jackman around. Why did she have to be the one? Like, why hire her? Just because, like, hey, we got Weaver, Ellen Ripley's in our movie. Therefore, this is a good sci-fi movie, isn't it? Isn't yeah. It? Does the Weaver cred earn this any cred for you, Adam? Chappie? God, no. (laughs) No, man. You know, the thing is, I remember when I very first saw this, like, I saw it, like, right when it came out, and um, I thought it was okay. Like, I didn't think it was great. I was more or less confused by a lot of it, uh, as as far as, like, even something as simple as Hugh Jackman's wardrobe and hairstyle. Hairstyle is definitely (laughs) odd. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, no, like, it's just... Like, Weaver's in it, she's fine, she's giving her all, but she's basically a nothing character in the movie. Instead, you gotta follow fucking DeAntward around and all this shit, yeah. and it's just... I will say the visual effects still hold up very well. Chappie still looks fucking great. Like, the character and the, the animation and everything looks really, really solid still. DeAntward, Ninja especially, I just find so annoying. And then, after finding out a lot more about them as people. Uh, it, it was hard to get through the viewing for this just because awful. And then even when you read about the production and anything, it's kind of a miracle they even got anything made. But again, it's just District 9 worked. All right, so let's do Elysium. It's also in South Africa. It's also, you know, which is fine. It's what he knows. And I get that. That's totally cool. But the plots are all so similar between the three to where None of them deviate enough to where you're like, oh, this guy's exciting. This director is exciting. Uh, I don't think Blomkamp has been exciting since District 9. But yeah, the, the weaver of it all, like I get why she was cast. I get why, you know, she'd be cast as sort of this boss of this company and, you know, why Hugh Jackman would listen to her and all makes sense in a way. But the ending of this movie, as Addison said, is so absurd. Whether or not anything in the movie prior to the ending was like sort of 
cool or redeemable or all right yeah this isn't too bad that ending is just so fucking lousy yeah. and sappy and especially even just the last frame it's like oh fuck this this is insulting it pulls the rug out from under you like i was kind of you know i was along for the ride you know up until the end like when chappy just like figures out you know how he can swap consciousness and it's like okay right with with sony products like ps4s yeah right yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah, that's yeah, all you need yep. and it's like wait a minute wait a minute like this whole time i was under the impression that this robot was like dumb and learning on the fly and you're telling me he figured this out with like no teaching whatsoever i mean yep. how? because he hooked up to the internet so right. then he immediately knows like oh i know everything now he's south african ultron Red Bull! Okay, there's a good product placement. There you go. Have that. But it doesn't get in the way of the Sony Vio, which is the way more important Yes, uh, right. product placement, yep. for sure. Absolutely. It's just, and I mean, like I said, there's some fun bits in it. Like, when they convinced him to go try to steal that car, because it was originally Ninjas, and he just destroys the fucking car. Like, that's kind of funny. Like, there's some really interesting stuff yeah. here. It's just... All of it feels like retread of what we've already seen out of this guy. So it's nothing new. No. Like interesting, sure, but none of it's handled well. It's just, I don't know if it's because of all the behind the scenes drama that was going on. I'm sure that hindered a lot of what he planned for. He probably was betting on himself, thinking that like, I'll get my trilogy out of this. And any questions or anything will be answered in part two. Never rely on the fact that you're going to be able to have a sequel. You know, yeah. I mean, it's not like the movie bombed or anything, because I was also under the impression the movie was a bomb. It just wasn't a very big hit. It wasn't, right. It wasn't huge. Yeah, yeah. It cost about 50 million, made 102, so it kind of like a broke even. Yeah, after marketing and all that. that. Right. The thing is about the ninja thing and D'Antward, you could tell it's just something he's wanted to do forever is to work with them i mean originally he wanted him to be cast as the, as max da costa in elysium and then when he couldn't ninja couldn't do it then he went after eminem and then when eminem said only if you film it in detroit he said no and then matt damon was his third choice yeah that i remember seeing that in theaters and just being totally bummed like, oh, that's terrible that's such terrible. a bad bad movie I mean, I, and the thing is, like, I revisited, like, the Neil Blomkamp uh, oeuvre, as it were, and also watched even some of his shorts through Oat Studios, which is what he did pretty much between Chappie and his most recent film, Demonic, uh, which I also did see. Um, and I think a lot of that really colors my opinion, where when Chappie first came out, I loathed it. I really hated it. And I think it was kind of the residual thing of, like, loving District 9 having very mixed thoughts about Elysium and then with Chappie, just like, especially with that ending that you're talking about, just like being so baffled by what this was, I really hated it. And then after like kind of doing this re-examination, kind of, you know, going back to it, I don't hate Chappie nearly as much. I think I'm just more frustrated by it because I think there is a lot of fascinating elements in here. I think particularly with the titular character who we haven't mentioned yet is played by a uh, Charlotte Copley, uh, who mainly does the voice and did some like onset sort of stuff that was used as reference material that wasn't, like, mo-capped exactly for the visual effects stuff. Um, I like a lot of the initial stuff where Chappie comes to life and he's kind of, like, trying to learn things, like the rubber chicken yeah. and elements like that. And and even, like, his relationship with um, the, at least the Yolandi character, I find to be at least a bit more charming in terms of, like, oh, she's trying to be, like, a mother to him, but at the same time she is, like, a completely reckless criminal 
who has like very childish sensibilities in her own right. So he's got, like got a kind of like tug and pull between being like, oh, I'm a child being raised by children versus having like a creator with Dev Patel's character who wants the best out of me, but he's just not around because he has to deal with a lot of the bullshit that's at work or whatever. There's a lot of, I think, interesting elements to that. But the more other outside elements come in, like I agree with you, I think Ninja is fucking terrible in this movie. And every time he comes up at it, it's just like kind of this annoyance. And then even Hugh Jackman is a character, like his entire thing I'm just puzzled by. Not just the hair or the khaki shorts or all this other stuff, but even like earlier on, like the stuff that like really convinced me even before this point, like, oh no, this is, does not make any sense to me is... There's a whole bit where he goes up to Dev Patel and tries to tell him, like, hey, let me use the god key. And he immediately elevates from, like, oh, I'm kind of, like, hide something about, like, my actual intentions to I'm going to pull a gun out in the middle of the office and threaten you and then say, like, everybody, JK, lol, it it wasn't a real thing, right? Right? So I'm not going to get fired immediately and arrested, probably, (laughs) for doing that. Like, why would anybody in that office look the other way? I mean, it's not like he was even one of the higher ups. He's just like another employee at a desk, you know, in the back of yeah. the room. Why is he open carrying constantly in that movie? Yeah. It makes sense. He's given a presentation and he's got a gun on his hip. Why? He's a fucking software designer. What is going on? It, yeah. like, I get he's ex special forces or whatever, but so the fuck what? I, I work with a guy who was a Marine. He doesn't come to work with a fucking M16. Especially for his office cubicle job where he's got, like, a gun on his hip. It's just like, oh, I'm getting coffee. Anyone want decaf? I relax, everyone. It's a prank. Uh, come on. Lighten up. <laughs> like, nah, bro. Yeah, like, and, like, yeah. literally no other employee in that entire facility is given, like, any dialogue. There's no other, like, characterization to anybody else there. Because uh, we have to have more time, once again, to, like, kind of balance like this movie is going for so many massive big heady questions about like what's the nature of consciousness how can ai sort of like go beyond our own human means what does it even mean to be alive and all these other things well it's handling them in some of the more baffling stupid ways like i say a lot of the stuff about like chappy early on as he's like sort of trying to get um, sort of acquainted with being alive. But then, like, Adam kind of mentioned, like, that one montage of him, like, you know, basically being goaded into stealing for uh, Ninja. There's, like, some interesting aspects to that, but then as we go along, and there's the stuff that we mentioned earlier about, like, he can upload, <laughs> like, just by going on the internet, he can ha- master the ability to transport living souls into other <laughs> fucking robot bodies. It just, it, it, it feels like it's just like, there's too much It's that uh, Blomkamp is attempting for this movie. And it feels like, if you wanted to do like your trilogy thing, why not like put some of the shit to the side and just focus on like one of these storylines and make it like a solid individual movie? He tried to juggle tons of stories in this one and killed off a bunch of characters. Did Hugh Jackman even die in this movie? I don't even know. Like, he was thrown into the ceiling, but then we just sort of leave him sitting on some rubble. Like, did he die, or was he supposed to be the villain in the second one, too? You know, like, I, I don't know. It was kind of unclear. Right, after Chappie said fully, like, I hate you for causing violence. Let me p- fucking destroy you. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. this office cubicle built in. <laughs> what did he learn? What, would, what did he learn from any of this? I just feel like he didn't close any sort of chapter, like, at the end of this movie. There's no, like... 
definitive end. It just kinda... it, it's not satisfying as its own individual movie. No, no, yeah. not at all. I guess I, I want to focus a bit more on Copley because we've talked about Charles Copley on the show a few times in terms of after District Nine, he was also in a similar vein to Blomkamp, somebody that like Hollywood really tried to like plug into different movies, like you know, in Maleficent or The A Team or a bunch of other things. And he's like such an interesting character actor who I think even regardless of the quality of like the sort of Elysium and uh, Chappie, like you can at least see, I think there's a lot of like fascinating choices he makes uh, with, with like, I think he's the highlight of Elysium as Jodie Foster's assassin that comes in and has like his weird, like calling people boy and stuff like that. I think he's like a really fun, wild character actor who I wish people would be able to cast better in other things. But the, do you like at least his performance in here, Adam? Yeah, it's fine. It doesn't bother me. It's got a real child sensibility to it, and it seems like kind of a sweet voice, and then real manic when he starts yelling and getting upset and stuff. I think he does fine. Yeah, it's a better use of Copley that we've gotten in like pretty much anything he's done outside of Blomkamp works. I would say the next... The only other one that's really fucking good that nobody talks about is Copley and Hardcore Henry. It's great. I was going to say that. Yeah, that was an awesome movie. But um, yeah, I think Copley works in this uh, just fine. I think he's, uh, it's not like a mind-blowing vocal performance, but if for what it's supposed to be, it works. I, I agree that like you feel at least that sort of innocence where a lot of people accuse, like along with the Robocop elements, this of also being kind of like a short circuit riff oh yeah yeah at the same time like i think he at least has a bit more distinction in terms of like the little movements that are going on which i guess is a credit to like i said there was reference stuff of copley on set but also the special effects guys actually animating him like when he first comes alive and he almost acts like a little puppy or little kid just like hiding under desks and then like kind of coming over and like being instantly like fascinated by like the chicken and his body language i think is incredible for like really displaying a lot of that and even copley's voice i think works to make you like instantly on his side even like all the stuff like the best comedy of the movie is like that whole sequence where he starts stealing cars and it's just like uh, don't steal things from people <laughs> and throws them around like that stuff's fun but i think i agree like as it goes along as you give Chappie more of like that knowledge and that personality i guess of like oh i'm gonna like try and fix everything i think that's where it starts like really falling apart and even copley can't save that unfortunately like adam we, we kind of mentioned with the diant word of it all um where the, these are two actual south african rappers um who uh camp basically kind of cast as versions of themselves in this movie and as Adam kind of hinted at, um, they've been accused of some horrible things, especially after this movie. I didn't even know. I'm, I'm, I'm curious what uh, what you guys have to say about that. I don't know. A lot of sexual abuse on minors and stuff like that. Oh, my sexual God. Agreement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my Just God. really awful Yeah, and, and I mean, and even during the production of this movie, doing stuff like, you know, like directly criticizing actors like Ho Jose Pablo Cantillo right to his face, or even Ninja was especially accused of, like, sending uh, nude pictures to female crew members um, of him, like, getting filleted and shit like that. Good lord. Yeah, very bad. Uh, and, but even in context of just, like, watching the movie... Uh, neither of them are very good actors, especially, I think Ninja's the more aggressively annoying one to me, because obviously he's supposed to be like, oh, the negative influence, the abusive father, but every time he shows up, it's just like, I don't even know, like, you're playing yourself, and it feels like you aren't even playing yourself very well, basically. <laughs> I think it's especially awful when you have, like, Copley or Dev Patel, or even uh, Cantelia, who's a pretty solid character actor in his own right, like, next to them you distinctly see like, oh, wow, they are so much lesser as actors. Well, that was what also surprised me was the fact that they uh, kept Ninja alive at the end. And it's like, wait a minute, of all these characters, he's the one you want to see go. 
You know, like what the hell? Is that supposed to be like some sort of you know, plot twist. Or even worse, like a redemption arc for him. Yeah, like how is that a redemption arc? I mean, he didn't really, I mean, he should have gone. Out of all of the main, you know, people who like kidnapped Chappie to begin with, the sort of most innocent of the three, he gets ripped in half by that, you know, moose robot first thing. Right, and and even then, like, that's another thing. Feels at certain points, like we mentioned, like this weird mixture of Short Circuit and RoboCop. It definitely feels like there's a weird tonal thing where at points you can feel like, oh, this is like a cute kid's movie about a robot that came to life and then horrible graphic violence like that. Sure, yeah. Or yeah. Hugh Jackman's like immediate beat up scene. It feels tonally so all over the place. Yeah, I definitely at the end was getting vibes where I was like, you know, if, uh, if one of these goons gets covered in toxic waste or something and then run over by a car, it would fit here. You know, I wouldn't be surprised. Jose Pablo Cantillo's death feels like a trauma thing. Like, the way that, especially, there's that shot of, like, his body being thrown onto the brick wall and then falling over. Just like, this feels like it's from a Toxic Adventure movie. Yeah. But Chappie can paint. Yeah. Remember that, guys? And throws ninja stars. Oh, God. Right, which is, which is another part of, like, the weird arc thing where, like, I mentioned, like, later on, he, like, beats the shit out of... Hugh Jackman's like, how dare you commit violence? Which is after that point where, like, he's throwing ninja stars and he sees somebody is, like, bleeding after that happened. And it's like, oh, my God, I, I thought you just went to sleep. I thought that's what happened. You figure, oh, this is the, the progression to where he's not going to do violent things. But nope, he does horribly violent, awful things after that. So there's no real progression to Chappie at all. Well, it's also sort of, like, selective uh, understanding of certain things, like... He was still naive to like throwing ninja stars at people and stuff and seeing them bleeding out on the sidewalk. You're going to expect me to believe that like this robot solves like prior to this, the ability to switch people's consciousness in machines using the internet, PlayStation 4, but he still doesn't understand that like that is going to hurt someone like stabbing them and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is after like he downloads like uh, Yolandi's consciousness onto like a flash drive. Right. Yeah, they would have already done that before this big robbery. <laughs> right. Especially that he downloaded the consciousness of like the had access to the internet. Yeah. And downloaded all that stuff, and it's like, oh, I I don't know what death is. Ten out of ten. Great movie. Um. <laughs> yeah. No. It's just like I said. I think if if anything, like. It's a placeholder role for Sigourney Weaver. She doesn't really have much to do other than be the boss in like three major scenes. Not even major scenes, but in three scenes. And other than that, it's just, it goes to show that, yeah, District 9 was pretty good. And some of his shorts are are pretty solid. Arnett, uh, we might have seen the best we're ever going to get out of Mr. Blumenkampf there. It's, at least that's what it seems like to me. Yeah, I would definitely recommend the the Oat Studios shorts, which are on YouTube, um, which you can watch. Like, uh, particularly Zygote is a really good one. Awesome. Um, uh, yeah, with Dakota Fanning, or even, uh, I believe it's called Raka, which also has Sigourney Weaver in, like, a supporting part, but a much better part than this movie, quite frankly. I mean, it's kind of surprising, just because, you know, District 9, like, he came out of the gate so hard. And it's like, where'd that momentum go? They would only, you know, they just maybe the studio would give them even more money. Well, I mean, I feel that's what like Elysium basically is. It feels like, okay, kid, you graduated from doing this like small, weird sci-fi movie that got like a bunch of Oscar nominations and made a lot of money. So here is your big Hollywood studio movie. I think the bigger problem is just that like 
with District 9, which revisiting, I still, I like District 9 quite a bit, but it feels like we definitely kind of gave him the massive overpraise of like, oh my god, this is an amazing work that's so phenomenal and speaks to so many truths, as opposed to what it should have really been, which is like, if we had treated it as like, this is a very good promising start, and you can keep building up your career, as opposed to like, this is amazing, magnificent, got nominated for Best Picture. Yeah. It's his first feature film. So I think just with that kind of immediate, like, early success, we see this all the time. Sure. Massive early success often leads to sort of like a quick downfall, especially in the case, like Adam kind of mentioned, like there's so many recurring, like, uh, sort of uh, visual elements and stylistic things, but also just with like, he's trying to juggle so much social commentary in both Elysium and Chappie. And I just don't think, like, it all kind of crumbles under the weight of, like, this admittedly limited basket he's created for himself. I'm, I was surprised when you mentioned earlier that he came out with a, a recent movie. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. Right, I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird, like, demon possession slash, like, VR movie. Where it's, like, basically um, a, a woman realizes, like, I can only communicate with my dying mother through this VR technology that this hospital's created. But it turns out she's also possessed by a demon. So it's this weird, like, digital demon movie. It's very bad. I think, if anything, my slightly improved thoughts on Chappie might come a bit from just, like, Demonic is, like, bottom of the barrel, terrible, bad. I wish he had just kind of stuck to doing the shorts. If anything else, the shorts really proved, like, okay, you're actually very good at making, like, these smaller, like, about a half hour at most, like, short films. As opposed to, like, when he comes back to, like, a, you know, that's, like, an hour, 45-minute movie. It just really shows up, like, oh, it doesn't feel like you have a lot to say, necessarily. Even when you're, like, changing up, like, all the stylistic stuff, or, like, it doesn't take place in South Africa or anything like that. It still shows up, like, oh, even with, even, like, COVID restrictions, which he made the movie during COVID and stuff like that. It just shows, like, oh, there still isn't a lot of creative juice left in you, it seems. It feels just like, well, I gotta make something. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know what? We've been talking quite a bit about Chappie. Uh, So let's go ahead and uh, do our final thoughts here. Uh, Quick final thoughts. Uh, Addison, first final thoughts on Chappie. Well, I mean, I don't regret having seen it finally. It bites off more than it can chew, and uh, it will not be remembered. I mean, it's a shame because his career started out so strong, and the visual effects are really good in that movie. It just was a pretty big misfire. Well, maybe he'll gain everybody back with his Gran Turismo movie. A little late to the party on that one. Bizarre, yes. Uh, but Adam, your final thoughts on Chappie? I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that, that's about it. Okay, that's all we need. It's short and sweet. Um, yeah, I think the only way this would be really remembered is one from the internet meme, which was great, like the Twitter meme that went around. Just like while while watching Chappie with my girlfriend and seeing Chappie pop up for the first time on the screen. That's Chappie. <laughs> like, that's the fun. Let's, that legacy and also just the legacy of sort of the weird career of Blomkamp and the sort of that arc that's so fascinating. Just like those three movies, it's a tragedy in three acts of seeing a really solid start, a very middling, underwhelming second act, and then this one that really just kind of closed off any of the potential of like what could have been with that guy. Even though I think there are interesting elements to Chappie that I think could have worked if he had had the chance to like actually develop them as opposed to just trying to like juggle all this stuff that he was obviously trying to develop for a trilogy and all this other stuff. It feels definitely like a movie that um, kind of falls under the weight of so much that it's trying to do, unfortunately. Uh, but let's go ahead and go into our good feature now of Galaxy Quest. In the far reaches of the galaxy, a civilization is under siege. We are all that is left. They've searched the universe for a leader. Stay tuned for scenes from next week's Galaxy Quest. Never give up. 
never surrender. He will save us. What they got. Never give up and never surrender. We're struggling TV actors. You are our last hope. And they're about to put on a command performance. Eight million light years away. We are actors, not astronauts. You are our protectors. DreamWorks Pictures presents Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, Galaxy Quest. Uh, so Galaxy Quest came out December 25th, 1999 uh, from director Dean Parasote. And uh, this is a comedy sci-fi movie that many people might be aware of. Uh, basically, it follows um, a group of actors who were on a Star Trek-esque show called Galaxy Quest who end up getting recruited into an actual alien sci-fi mission after a certain point. And uh, Weaver is part of the sort of ensemble along with uh, Tim Allen, Alan Rickman, Tony Shalhoub, Sam Rockwell, uh, a lot of fun people uh, who are in this movie. And uh, Adam, this was your good pick, so why don't you talk about why you decided to pick this as a good one for our Weaver episode. Well, A, she's great. Her sort of role and performance is a deconstruction of the, for lack of a better term, sex bomb role that, you know, a lot of female actors were playing in the 70s and 80s. They weren't really getting a, a lot of mainstream, like, serious work. And hers is sort of a deconstruction. Think of, like, you know, Three's Company and shit like that. Like, you know, all they were there because of the way they looked, not much else. And, uh, Even on sci-fi shows, we're plenty guilty of that as well. Oh, yeah, no, no, first, uh, yeah, oh, fuck, yeah, are you kidding me? Absolutely, dude. But I picked it because, A, she's great in it. She's really fun. You get this real sense of, like, warmth from her character and that she really does care about not only the fans, but her fellow castmates. It's just a lot of fun. It's a stupid, dumb, fun movie that you can just throw on. Like, if you want to sit there and really watch it, you can enjoy it. Or if it's something you have on in the background where you're doing other stuff, you're going to have fun with it. I mean, Sam Rockwell's great in it. Alan Rickman is great. Tim Allen's great. It's probably the best Tim Allen. And it's a really fun to see Alan Rickman do comedy. You know, it's that's always fun. So it's just, I picked it because, and the effects still hold up. It's just a cute movie. It's a good movie. Like, if you got young kids and you kind of want to get them into sci-fi or even into Star Trek or something like that, like Galaxy Quest would be a good bridge movie to get into that for a lot of kids. Like my kid sat and watched it with me and she had a good time with it. Um, and she's only seven, but still she had a good time. She was nonstop asking fucking questions because I think it was kind of a little bit lost on her that, wait, so they did a TV show and now it's really happening? Like, I don't, I'm like, okay, whatever. Like, she's like, wait, this happened in real life? I'm like, no, real life in the continuity of the film. Come on, it's universe building. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, I just think it's just a super fun movie, man. Yeah, I mean, you can tell also even DreamWorks kind of had that, where this was originally filmed as like a PG-13 movie. And then they were like, oh, because the Rugrats movie did very well, we want to like edit this down to a PG rating. And you can see that I think like the biggest problem I have with the movie is there's plenty of very obvious dubs over curse words. Like very early on, Daryl Mitchell has a line where it's like, oh, you're so full of it. Even though it's like, you're clearly saying full of shit. Or of course, Weaver has the worst example of that with like, she when the they're go, trying to go down that hallway with all the like things coming down, she's like, oh, fuck this, clearly. But she's saying like, oh, screw that. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. It's just like, eh, not the, not the best there. Uh, but uh, at the same time, yeah, it still can appeal to all ages. I really do like this movie. But Addison, what about you? What do you think of Galaxy Quest? That was definitely one that I liked when I was a kid. I saw it in theaters. And 
I'm more of a Star Wars fan than Star Trek fan. I mean, I still enjoyed it without there being any, I had no knowledge of Star Trek. Like I'd never seen it before. And um, I definitely agree that this would be a good bridge if you want to head in that direction. You know, the references and stuff will be lost on you if you're not a Trekkie. But I still think that if you're a fan of, you know, like mistaken identity stuff, um, you know, it's very Three Amigos. It's not too often that you get to see Tim Allen like live action because now he's just sort of relegated to voiceover stuff with Buzz Lightyear every couple of years. But this is a good Tim Allen vehicle. And it was actually kind of surprising to read today that he wasn't the first choice and that, um, you know, I couldn't see the movie with like Alec Baldwin or anything like that. Like, I feel like that would have been terrible like a really just bad choice yeah i mean he was definitely not the first choice to the degree that like harold ramus was originally attached to the movie and he had really wanted either baldwin like you mentioned or steve martin or kevin klein yeah steve Steve martin i could see that be because of the three amigos sort of similarities you know being confused for a different thing but um i still don't I, i still think tim allen was the way to go he definitely feels like an extension of, you know, like a, of even more buffooned, like William Shatner type. Like it just, that, that seemed to really work. Well, I really, really like about the movie, especially is just the fact that like the, you can tell the relationship with all the different actors who have to like do these conventions and all this other stuff where you have like an Alan Rickman who does all this stuff just like I played Richard III. <laughs> you have like him and some of the other ones who are like very sort of disinterested and like, I'm doing this for money because I need it. And then like, Tim Allen, who was like so into it, it's just like this is where I'm a rock star. This is where everybody loves me. Just talking like signing autographs, but just like, well, I was a captain. I had to make sure I protected my crew <laughs> and everything. Just like living in the glory days of like this show and like all this attention he gets from a bunch of dorks who come up to him to like sign, you know, pictures and stuff like that. There's a real like dichotomy with that. Even Weaver, as much as Adam mentioned the warmth, at the same time she still is like over a lot of the bullshit of doing this, especially like with Allen's bullshit in particular. Like I love that one back and forth that they have where she's like um oh excuse me i'm the captain of this vessel and i need your help and she's like it was cute when i didn't know who you were and then immediately leaves just gives you an entire like backstory and just one dialogue exchange and i think that's the thing where like adam kind of mentioned like oh it's like a dumb fun movie i think that's kind of put a disservice to the fact that i think this is an incredibly well put together script i just love like every single detail it reveals about like the character relationships and then the setups and payoffs of like oh whatever bullshit that was going on on the original like old tv show coming up later when they have to actually put it into action when they're actually in space i just think the movie does such a great job of dealing all this stuff that just dismissing it as dumb fun i think is an insult to the movie yeah, I, I agree. It was more clever than I think the average person would really, you know, put together. I completely agree with that. I think that's sort of the allure of the movie. I guess when I mean pure dumb fun, I don't mean that the movie's dumb. I mean, you could just have fun. It is super smart and it is super self-aware of itself and what it's doing. And it's sort of, like I said, the deconstruction of the old 60s, 70s sci-fi shows and, you know, the deconstruction of celebrity and all that stuff. And it really works for that. Uh, but also, if you do just want to watch it on a level like, oh, look at these people getting into these crazy hard drinks, you can have fun like that, too. Uh, this movie does work on a lot of different levels. And I don't think, like you said, Thomas, I don't think a lot of people give it credit for that. You know, I mean, I know this movie does have a fan base and there are a lot of people who really, really like it. But I just it's one of those where every time I watch, it, I'm like, I cannot believe there wasn't a sequel to this. Not that I want it. No. But if we're going to make sequels, like we were talking about even with Chappie, this would be the good type of movie to do it with, where it is a self-contained story. It is completely, you know, 
there is a beginning, middle, and definitive end, but it could go on. You could make another one where they have to go back up there. Unfortunately, you run the the risk of just repeating yourself again, but it could be done. I mean, look at all the different Star Trek movies. Look at all the different Star Wars movies. This could have been a fun little comedy sci-fi franchise if they wanted it to be. Yeah, and I mean, it didn't do extremely well at the time it came out. No. It made about $90 million on its like $45 million budget. So it was kind of just like, oh, that did fine, but we're not going to really do sequels. And they keep saying like in the recent years, like, the, you know, Tim Allen will just say like, oh, hey, there's a script that's been developed or there's a, even talk of a TV show, which I think really fell apart because like everyone wanted to do it and then Alan Rickman sadly passed away. Yeah, you can't do it with I know Rickman is so the heart of this movie and he's so phenomenal it's such a beautiful performance where you have like so much of like that earlier stuff I was talking about where he complains about like oh I hate doing this even though I love that he wears the stupid headpiece the entire movie and never even like there's the shot of him talking to Sigourney we were just like I don't know what's going on with him and he's still wearing it in his fucking apartment (laughs) but then as it goes along like you really get a sense of like he's like trying to get adjusted to the situation and then finally accepts that like no what i did despite how silly it was means something to in this case this alien species and the whole bit where like that one guy gets shot and he says the whole grab thar's hammer thing to him it's a genuinely emotional beautiful moment in the middle of this very silly comedy it really works it really helps you i completely agree to me if they were to do a sequel like this now and i know the movie i'm about to name there are people who like it i don't know if you do like it addison but thomas and i both are not fans to me, it was like doing Ghostbusters Afterlife without Ramus. You know, like Ramus is in it, this horrible CGI version, but without, you know, you gotta have Ramus. Like, if you're gonna bring the Ghostbusters, the original team back, not having Egon Spangler is a huge blow. Just yeah. like if they were to do this, if you do, you know, fucking Galaxy Quest 2, not having Doctor, whatever, I forget his name. But Alan Rickman's character, not having him back, it, when it's a huge blow. It breaks up the dichotomy and the, the chemistry between the whole cast. That's what worked so well about Ghostbusters and Harold Ramis. He balanced out sort of the, he, I mean, he was nuts just like the rest of them, but he was sort of the calmer one. And in this, kind of the same thing up until the end when Alan Rickman loses his shit. It's just, yeah, I, I couldn't see this working now. But at the time, like I said, I was kind of surprised. Like I thought this would have had at least one sequel, at least. Uh, but yeah, if it only made ninety, see, I thought it did a little bit better than that. Yeah, I remember going to the video store, and like every video store I went to, man, they had dozens of copies. Yeah, right, exactly. The, the wall was lined with. Well, them. I think that's where it found its audience. You know what I mean? I think it, so too. Yeah. 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 You know, like that's definitely like- that's, that's something that like my roommate and I talk about sometimes is like. You know, Wikipedia and like Box Office Mojo, they only have information for like the theatrical run on there. But, you know, I'd really like to know, um, you know, how well some of these movies do after the fact, because there's plenty of movies that were not box office hits um, for one reason or another. But then they found themselves, you know, becoming more popular later on. Right. Look at Monster Squad, for God's sakes. You know, Monster Squad was a huge flop. And now it has a huge cult following. Yeah. To the point to where the letter writing campaign to get the Blu-ray made is the biggest of its kind. This movie feels so much like a early dawn of DVD. Yes. Like, oh, you got to pass this around to people. Which I think is a problem. That, like, that's why you don't sort of get kind of cult classics like this is because the physical media market has so, like taken a downturn yeah because like when you had that element of it was just like oh this is something special you have to return this physical thing to me instead of like oh watch it on netflix and it's like yeah i'll watch it maybe 
I don't know. Maybe never. I don't know if I will. Yeah, I never really thought of it that way. But that's that's a very good point because back in the day, you know, if someone would loan me something or if I would rent something or buy something, you bet damn well better believe I'm going to watch it. I got to turn this back in in five days. I got to watch it at some point. Fuck, Thomas wants his DVD back. I better get it to him. All right, let me fucking watch it so at least I can say I did. But when it when it's like... When it's right there, uh, ready to be yeah, streamed. Yeah, at your fingertips Sometimes. constantly. I mean, I don't know yeah. how many shows... My brother and you know Thomas have been like, "Oh, you should watch this. Oh, you'd like it." Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My watch list and the watch list is like fifty things, and then my 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 watch list is pretty big. And it's like every time there's a new batch of movies that come out, well, I add three more to the watch list, and then it's like now those things that were like number one have been relegated to number twenty, and it's like, well, now I'm never gonna see it, never gonna watch it. Yeah, it's like a Hydra thing where like one you watch, there's like twenty more that yes, come no, that's exactly what it is. If, if they wanted to keep Galaxy Quest going. And it would work. Uh, I actually watched what I'm going to sort of bring up earlier parts of it with my daughter. My daughter fucking loved it. But if they did a la like the new night at the museum and did an animated feature for Galaxy Quest, I think that would work. I think they could pull that off if it's going to go forward. Because then if you don't get the entire returning voice cast back, you're fine. You don't have to because it's animated. I, I, I mean, it would help. But if you don't, you yeah, it's okay because they did it for the night at the museum, obviously with Robin Williams passing, and like Zachary Levi steps in for Ben Stiller. But it worked. Uh, I think if they're going to keep it going, that maybe would be the route to go. But I highly doubt it's ever going to happen, especially yeah. with sort of how problematic Tim Allen can be sometimes and, and things like that. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, it, this is really it's like this and Buzz Lightyear. I would argue are like the best examples of Allen. Just in terms of, like, I feel so much more invested in him here than when he is, say, I don't know, just being some guys just like, man, women are weird, am I right? I'm a dumb guy. Well, he's in one of the worst Christmas movies I've ever seen, you know, that Christmas with the cranks garbage. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, Santa Claus 3. Oh, God. Yeah. Santa Claus 3 as well. I really only, story. yeah. The, the first one's the only good one, and like yes. now there's a Disney Plus show that I know I'm ever going to watch. Oh, no um, way. No. Oh, right. Yeah. His War on Christmas Santa Claus's show, where they literally are just saying, like, it's why can't we have to say Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas? It's problematic. And shit, like, they're like, oh, no. Why are we doing this? Oh, yeah, I mean, this is bad. <laughs> in, in the early yeah, 2000s, is... he was just kind of rattling off these movies where he was just kind of playing the same dumb guy over and over and over again. And I saw him at David Mehmet's uh, Red Belt. He's in that. I've heard he's very good. He's very good at it. He plays a out-of-touch, sort of prickish Hollywood actor. What range? Well, yeah, that's true. But he's really good. <laughs> uh, but I think, like, what, what works about him here, I think, is, like, there's such a tremendous example where, like, you see him early on with stuff. Like, I, I love when um, the Thermians come to his house and he's, like, completely hungover and disheveled, mm. just like, oh, I, I guess I better put some pants on. <laughs> and they, like, walk in. And I love, shout out to, like, uh, the, an underrated MVP of this whole movie is Enrico called Tony. Oh yeah, no, he plays he's like the main Thermian. Almost steals the movie. Who was so amazing and apparently was like the first guy to audition and got the part and then every single other person like like the speech patterns and the body language is based on that guy's performance from the audition. That so it's like sense. he instantaneously created like what the entire race kind of talks and looks like. And I just like love when he like is just like, "Oh, I'm so honored to be in your presence sir as like tim allen is like kneeled over looking for his shoes and his ass is like directly in the air uh, without any pants on 
<laughs> like, there's such a, like, you can tell that he's at such a lower state, yet at the same time he tries to have, like, this, like, bigger demeanor about him, that once he actually is in the position of, like, oh, I'm going to be a space captain, he's the most excited about it. Mm-hmm. Like, the moment he finds, like, oh, my God, I'm in space, I gotta, like, get everybody on board, this is going to be great, I'm, like, a captain now, isn't it? Like, when he walks in with, like, the uniform, just like, guys, it's great, I can't wait for you all to put on the uniforms. <laughs> One of my favorite bits in this whole movie is when they all get transported up to the ship and they're all freaking the fuck out and scared and then tony shalhoub just comes in and goes wow that was wild it just walks out what's wrong with them i don't know and they just leave like tony shalhoub's totally buys into it like he's totally fine with it and yes i will agree uh enrico colatoni he's fucking great he's been around forever weird like a to see uh a young rain wilson yeah like that was crazy but yeah i love the thurbians the thing is it's so wholesome like they're all so wholesome they're purely innocence and it's just, it works so well. It, at, even at the moment where, you know, he finds out that, you know, they are actors and stuff and his reaction is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Now that you mention it, like, I didn't ever really know that it was originally PG-13 and got knocked down to PG. But now that you mention it, that does maybe attribute to some of sort of the tonal problems this movie can have at some parts. Um, it, it's just, it feels off in certain areas. but. Overall, I think it really works, and I think it's a really good ensemble. And to get back to sort of the topic of the show, Sigourney Weaver is super fun in this. Like I said, she cares to the point where she's calling Alan Rickman at home. Like, I think there's something wrong with him. But like you said, she's really fed up with this shit. Or especially like her confoundment of like what her role on the entire show was, where just literally she would repeat what the computer was. I know, I love that. References at the top of the show. But like that bit where she just is like, look, I have one job on this lousy ship, (laughs) but I'm going to do it. It's dumb, but I'm going to do it. It's like so, it's like the line of the movie. Mm -hmm. It is so fucking funny. (laughs) Uh, Sam Rockwell to me though, steals the movie, I think. I think Sam Rockwell is my favorite in the movie. I, I love that he played basically a red shirt in one episode <laughs> and he's hold, held on to it forever. Uh, I just think he's absolutely wonderful. Well, of course though, he's excellent at comedy. Well, and especially at this time with like smaller roles, like this was when he was sort of like coming up. And I think this is the first time I even saw him. In any I point. think it is like, for me really too. Found it distinctive. Yeah. Except for Ninja Turtles. Oh, that's true. Of course. <laughs> right. Good point with, with this garden of cigarettes. Yep. That's right. <laughs> hey, uh, but, but at least it was the first time I noticed him because, like, he does such a great job once again. Just like you mentioned, like, he's hanging on so hard to, like, like I, I was on the show, too. I'm with the crew, everybody. <laughs> and stuff like that. But then the moment he gets on, like, his reaction is probably the funniest when, like, they finally get uh, beamed up. And he starts, like, screaming. It looks like he's going to vomit <laughs> the moment he pops up on the ship. It's so funny. And then he becomes actually, like, a part of the crew. And it's a really sweet sort of uh, relationship there with, like, him. And, the, and also, just a shout out to another person who's small in this movie, but is so good fucking justin long oh yeah the yeah kid is so good yes i love really him good. so much which is like when he first comes up to tim allen just like oh so the quasars and the auxiliary ports like i'll come back later it's like i didn't even get to the main conundrum yeah, i know i know so or when it's, when, you know we only got 10 seconds left are you there Hello, he's taking off the garbage. Love, you have no idea what you're doing, what you've done. This is a weird, a very uh, crucial precipice right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, Justin Long is great in this. But, you know, Missy Pyle's great in this. And there's so many just great character actors. And even like Addison was talking about this earlier, like I was also very much a Star Wars kid. Like this, I think, was the closest to like a Star Trek movie that I saw when I was a kid until, like, I eventually got into, like, the Star Trek movies much later in, like, yeah, high school. Yeah, exactly. It, it didn't click until much later that I was like, 
oh, they're doing Star Trek, you know. Um, right. To, to a degree that certain people who were on Star Trek watch this movie just like, why didn't we do this? Yeah. But at the same time, like, it works on its own level where, like, you get a full sense of what the TV show is from that convention. And then, like, the contrast where, like, you see the amazing cheapness of the actual show footage with, like, little Corbin Blue as young Daryl Mitchell <laughs> piloting the ship and, like, all, like, the clear, like, oh, everything's, like, plastered on his stickers and bullshit and it looks very homemade. But then the contrast to, like, when they actually go up into the ship and it looks amazing. I think that's another key thing to, like, comedy especially when it's like a sort of like high concept sort of like genre bending comedy like this is that like when you make all the stuff feel realistic and tacked out with like the Saris and all those like alien villains look great and the actual ship deck looks amazing and like when you see the little like octopus creatures is like how the Thermians actually look it all looks so good that when the stupid funny shit happens it makes it all the funnier like the attention to detail and stuff which not a lot of like comedy directors really pay attention to um, when they're doing like a satire of a certain genre or something like the window dressing is just as important, like as the jokes, because when you can sell both, then you have your movie. Like if the special effects were just like crappy 1997, you know, CGI or something like that, then it would have been just forgettable. It wouldn't have worked as well. Yeah, even for the late 90s, like, the CG stuff holds up incredibly well, too. Like, oh, the little, does. like, baby alien guys that they encounter or the big rock monster. I mean, even, like, two years later, you get, um, like, you know, The Mummy Returns, and that CGI sucks, you know? What are you talking about? That was 100% really The Rock. What are you oh, talking about? Oh, God, it's god-awful. <laughs> it's so fucking... And not even just... Uh, I don't want to get into it, but not even just The Scorpion King. All of it no. is bad. No, no, no. I did. I, I love. There was a great tweet where like somebody put up a bunch of screenshots of The Rock as the Scorpion King in CG. It's like, wow, these AI portraits are getting even better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, with with Galaxy Quest as well, it feels like at least there's also a lot of love for what they're parodying. I think it's like that Mel Brooks thing of just like you gotta love what you're making fun of. Yeah, definitely. And it feels like definitely like I think that's even Tim Allen says as much as like he is a big sci-fi person. Which I think is why he has so much like vested interest in actually making this work as well as it does. Is because these guys are actual fans, but at the same time they're just like, okay, because we're fans, we also have to make sure like this feels like authentic to some degree. Whether it's like the production stuff or Alan or even Weaver, of course, who like is so big in sci-fi. I think this sort of feels like the movie that kicked off also her return to like genre stuff. Because in the 2000s and especially like I mentioned in the 2010s, she kept popping up in a lot more like sort of genre specific stuff. I feel like she kind of like embraced fully after like, you know, getting Ellen Ripley out of her system. Just like, well, I can move on to do other kind of fun stuff within that genre as well. So I think it kind of, it's an interesting point in her career, but for everybody here, it is like such an incredible little uh, awesome movie that is just, uh, it still holds up pretty well to this day. And those are my final thoughts. So we'll go ahead and uh, start wrapping up here. Addison, what about your final thoughts on Galaxy Quest? It's just, it's a good idea. It was a good idea then. It's still a good idea now. And uh, I definitely, yeah, still think that it holds up for sure. And Adam, your final thoughts on Galaxy Quest. It's a super fun movie. It's super smart. And there's plenty of bits in this that work for kids, work for adults, and work for both. Uh, Sword Weaver's great. It's a great ensemble cast. The chemistry is off the charts with pretty much everyone. Uh, I just don't think there's really much of a fault with this movie. I, I think it's a really good sort of send up of classic sci-fi that also has its own identity. It's not just a spoof movie or not just uh, something making fun of what it's based on. It's yes, it's poking fun at it, but it's also, like you said, you can tell there's a deep appreciation for the sort of source material and, and its influences. And I think that 
you know, probably is what makes it elevates it a little bit above what you would expect. Uh, yeah, I, I, this is one that I would definitely recommend to uh, anybody who's into sci-fi and or hasn't seen this or wants to get their kids into sci-fi. This is a really cool one you could watch. Uh, well, let's get into our uh, weekly segment for the show, The Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double Redo. Double 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 Redo. So the Double Redo is a segment that Adam and I usually do every week. Uh, you know, we bring up a good and a bad feature uh, related to the topic. It's sort of like a recommendation thing. Like in addition to the two movies we talked about here, here's a good one for you to watch and here's a bad one for you to steer clear of. Um, but yeah, we'll go ahead and start off with uh, Adam. What are your choices for the Double Redo? All right. So uh, obviously for my good pick, it's uh, kind of something we were talking about earlier. You alluded to it that I was going to pick it, you know, when she does pop up in sort of later genre stuff. Uh, she's usually kind of just a cameo or shows up at the end, like like in Paul. Even though in Paul you hear her voice the whole movie, but you don't see her until the end. And, you know, things like that. But uh, I'm talking about Cabin in the Woods. Um, she sort of comes in and just puts everything into perspective of what's been going on and why it's been going on and, what we've been seeing and these ultimate choice that, you know, our lead has to make and will she make the right choice according to Scorn Weaver? Or will she damn everyone and doom us all? And uh, I just think it's a really fun little cameo and nod to like sort of how much she means to the genre and how much she, you know, how important she is as a figurehead and, and sort of a strong female lead. And uh, I just think it's a really, really cool little moment. And in, in honestly, a pretty good movie filled with a lot of little cool moments. Uh, but yeah, I think that's the best use of her is this sort of, holy shit, it's the Gourney Weaver moment. Um, and then for my bad, I have, which I just don't know what the fuck they were thinking with this. Uh, you know, obviously the MC, well, they weren't even MCU, but the Netflix Marvel series, the first four came out, which was what Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, Daredevil. And then they all team up for the defenders, which, okay, could be really cool. Oh, Sigourney Weaver's the villain. Fuck. Yeah. Wait, she's the head of the hand, the Japanese ninja clan. Oh, wait, Why? And it's so bad. It is so bad. They give her nothing to do but exposit boardrooms. And there's no chemistry between the four. I mean, some of them pair off and have chemistry. I'd argue Daredevil and Jessica Jones probably more than anybody, even more than Luke Cage and Jessica Jones. Uh, but still, just Sigourney Weaver gets nothing to do other than wear a white dress and exposit in boardrooms and give villainous monologues. It was such a huge misfire that Hey, big shocker that that was sort of the downfall of the Marvel Netflix shows. Because uh, all we got after that was, I think, Daredevil Season 2 came after, or it might have been before. It was right before. Yeah, it was just pretty much like Season 3 of Daredevil, Season 2 of Jessica Jones. I think Luke Cage had a second season after yeah, that. Yeah, and then you had Season 2 of The Punisher, and Season 2 of Iron Fist. So everything got a Season 2, but nothing went further than that. And The Defenders was really the start of, oh, they don't really know what they're doing. And plus the MCU was starting, it was hitting big at the time, so it just was no place for it. 
and it feels like they knew there was no place for it, and it just felt rushed and sloppy. And unfortunately, the idea of Sigourney Weaver playing a, a comic book villainess is fucking awesome on paper. It's great. And she tried. I'm not going to, again, she always does, but literally, you get someone like Sigourney Weaver and give her nothing to do as your villain in your superhero team show. Uh, just kind of an insult and a slap to the face. Like, this is fucking ridiculous. But we got that Weaver cred, so we can coast on that, yep. right? She's just in boardrooms and stuff, but she's here. Yep. You like her in other things, right? She's here. She's a ninja, <laughs> I think. <laughs> right? Quote, unquote. Yeah, um, I've seen both of these. Uh, Cabin in the Woods, yeah, it's, it's a bummer that obviously all the stuff with Joss Whedon obviously makes, like, some of his projects problematic, but Cabin in the Woods still has like a lot of the strength, like Drew Goddard uh, behind the camera and co-writing it. And as particular, like that whole finale, like it is such a great use where it's like, okay, we only have a limited amount of time with Weaver and we're going to use her here, but it's very impactful. It's like a great exclamation point at the end of that movie, <laughs> just her whole diatribe. And it's like, nah, fuck that. And then the whole world dies <laughs> because they're like, no, nah, we're not going to support this awful shit. And like, they especially build her up so well because it's like, oh, they keep talking about like the main people upstairs stairs and she's like one of them and her showing up that adds enough gravitas where it's just like oh yeah we have her for just a bit but it we make the most of our limited time with her uh yeah and defenders was the show where like i had followed like all the other marvel netflix shows to varying degrees of you know enjoying them um and then uh that was the one that killed it for me didn't even bother didn't want to keep going after that i've, I've never seen uh defenders but uh cabin in the woods is definitely great I actually kind of forgot that she was at the end of that, but no, that's a great point where when she shows up, you're like, holy crap, like, yeah, hell yeah. Like, of course this is Sigourney Weaver. Like, this is a perfect little role. And that's a, that's a good example of using her limited screen time, but meaningful and impactful rather than what they did with Chappie. Um, and then uh, for my picks, I'll uh, go next. Um, I have um, my good pick is the ice storm, which is much more sort of a drama that she was doing like a couple years before Galaxy Quest uh, from Ang Lee. Uh, she's part of a big ensemble where basically it takes place in 1973 and it's sort of like a ensemble family drama that involves mainly uh, it's uh, Kevin Klein and Joan Allen uh, are this couple who have a couple kids uh, that are Christina Ricci and Tobey Maguire and Tobey Maguire's coming in for a Thanksgiving break. Uh, to hang out with the family, and it's very much like this very sad sort of like psychological drama about him coming back to town and um, meeting up with not just like talking about his, you know, talking with his sister, but also there's another family which uh, Kevin Klein is having an affair with the uh, matriarch of the family who's played by Sigourney Weaver, and I think it's just like such a beautifully sad movie about kind of like these very like repressed people back in the 70s having to deal with like oh we can't really have our like children be sexually active danger and we can't talk about it with them so they have to try and kind of discover things on their own in very like small like awkward ways and i think it's very like human and touching and sad but in a way that at the same time feels fulfilling and i think weaver does such a great job especially as like she's you know not the main character of this story but you instantaneously get so much about like her sort of wants and desires from especially like the relationship she's having with Kevin Klein, this affair. Like I love, there's a bit where they're in bed together and Kevin Klein's going off about like his various issues. And she just coldly says to him, I'm not looking for another husband. 
I already have one of those. And it's so, like, devastating. But at the same time, you totally get, like, what... She she knows exactly what this relationship is when Kevin Klein doesn't. And I think she adds wonderfully to this whole ensemble that is, like, so, like, beautifully put together. And it's uh, Ang Lee, who is, like, this is a great director. And I think this is one of my favorites of his. Um, and then my bad pick is more in the genre element. This might get me in some sort of hot take waters where we've kind of referenced Ghostbusters a lot and I love the original Ghostbusters I think the original Ghostbusters feels like such lightning in a bottle for a movie that it feels like you can't really duplicate it I think the recent sequels have proved that but I think that was even the case with Ghostbusters 2 which is my bad pick which was definitely the one I saw a lot more as a kid. It aired a lot more on television than the original Ghostbusters did, especially like Comedy Central ran it all the time. And I've definitely seen it more than the original Ghostbusters, but at the same time, I think that's just made me focus a lot on a lot of the flaws where it's very much comedy sequelitis with like how we contrive, like, oh, these guys who were underdogs and became big shots at the end of the first movie now have to be underdogs again and we have to even repeat certain jokes but even more importantly the movie becomes so much more focused on special effects that they even forget about like the fun comedy dynamics a lot of the time there's still like fun stuff in there i think particularly when they're experimenting with like the slime and a few moments where the four of them are together and it's like oh this kind of feels still fun but in a different way than the original movie but overall it still feels like very much a definition of like a comedy sequel problem to the degree that you know, uh, people are really passionate about Ghostbusters, but I still feel like, aside from that original movie, um, sort of continuing it with or without the original crew, I think has inherent problems to it. And I think especially, I would say I even prefer this less than uh, the Ghostbusters 2016 movie, which I think is fun for what it is, and then even I prefer it at least a, a lot more to Afterlife, which I would put more bottom of the barrel of those Ghostbusters movies. Uh, I haven't seen The Ice Storm. Big shocker. You know, I, I honestly wasn't really even aware of it. I know the title, but I didn't even know what it was about. Um, and it sounds like some, I don't know, hey, whatever, maybe I'll check it out. I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, I mean, it sounds like a rip-roaring fun time. I don't yeah, know right. I <laughs> but Ghostbusters 2, yeah, um, I'm definitely with you on that. I mean, I probably like it a little bit more than you do. I think there's some good bits in it, but um, for the most part, I, I think it's just sort of a copy of a copy so it's not nearly as good uh and i can't i honestly 100 percent the final frame of that movie with the painting is one of my least favorite endings in a movie uh, ever uh because it's fucking stupid but uh yeah i you know again with sigourney weaver like in the first one with dana she had more to do you know when she would when she was possessed or you know, things like that. She actually had some more meat to her role. And the second one, she just becomes mom and Vankman's love interest. And she does they don't really do anything with her. And uh, I think that's really unfortunate because I think even in the first one, she gave sort of a not much to do uh, as far as a role. She gave it a lot more strength than it maybe would have had in anybody else's hands. And then the second one is just, yeah, okay. Well, she's here because she was in the first one, remember? And it's just, I don't know, man. Like, what? I can never remember saying, is it Peter McNeil? He's fun in Ghostbusters. Peter McNichol. Peter McNichol. Yeah. He's super fun in Ghostbusters 2. Uh, if you ever want to fucking read something crazy, uh, read up about the guy who played Vigo. Holy Lord. Yeah. Um, that is some of the most crazy shit I've ever read. Um, but yeah, other than that, I, I'm not. No, I'm good. I mean, I'll take it over Afterlife. I'll take it over 
probably uh, answer the call. But other than that, yeah, no. Well, um, I actually, I'll defend Ghostbusters too. I really like that movie. I mean, no, Dana Barrett doesn't have a very big role in the movie, but it doesn't never really bother me that much just because she did so much in the first movie. Vigo is such a cool villain, and I love the slime aspect. And Peter McNichol is one of the funniest underrated comedy actors. Um, no, Ghostbusters 2 isn't as good as the first one, but what sequel really is. But uh, in terms of like bad Sigourney Weaver movie, it's a very under the radar one. I mean, I'm not even sure if it's on DVD or anything, but I saw it. I remember renting it on VHS like back in the early 90s because there were always these like straight to VHS horror movies like, you know, Leprechaun, Rumpelstiltskin, Pinocchio's Revenge. And then you go and you look in the horror section and there's, you know, Snow White and there's Sigourney Weaver on the front cover, you know, there's her, you know, looking like, you know, beautiful Sigourney Weaver, but then underneath there is like her in this hag, you know, witch makeup. And you kind of think like, oh, this is going to be something maybe in the vein of like Leprechaun or Rumpelstiltskin or something. It was just a boring, boring movie. And then for a good one, I'll just go with classic aliens. You know, I mean, that's the movie that I think, you know, she was great in the first one, but then the second one, she cranked it up to 11. I mean, one of the best scenes in that movie is when her and Newt wake up and they discover that they're locked in that room and they can't get out. And like every form of like editing and like camera trickery in the book is used just in that sequence, you know, with the face huggers running along. And James Cameron actually makes you think that like, this could be the end of Ripley, like right in this scene here, you know, like that's crazy. And I mean, she ends up, you know, obviously getting away or, you know, she likes the lighter and it activates the sprinkler system and all that stuff. But it just, it really grew that character to really be, you know, just a badass. And I mean, it doesn't let up for the rest of the film or, you know, for the following two movies. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about Aliens on the show before when we did our Alien episode. I still think the movie's pretty great. I would still say, as I've gotten older, I've preferred the original Alien, but still, obviously, Aliens is a very close second. It's it's such a great example, especially how to, like, evolve a character who was, like, you know, became sort of, like, the hero just by proxy of everyone dying off in the original Alien, and then her really putting it up to a different level in Alien. She's incredible in that movie. Even regardless of whatever problems you have with the first four Alien movies, she is still, like, the most consistent thing about any of them. Um, and then, yeah, the Snow White movie is, like, a movie that only exists as, like, a blockbuster DVD cover for me. Oh, that looks like a spooky Snow White movie or whatever, but I've never really seen that one. All right. Snow White, A Tale of Terror. I saw it when it debuted on Showtime. It was originally going to be theatrical. Then it became a Showtime exclusive movie. I think it was one of the first times they did that. Uh, and it's Sigourney Weaver, Sam Neill... Monica Kina, who most people know from like Freddy vs. Jason is the main character, plays the version of Snow White in it. Uh, the pacing is terrible. That's why when it's like it was going to be theatrical, I don't understand why, because it feels like a movie that had built in commercial breaks, even though there was no commercials. Uh, it, it's a terrible, terrible film. And then, uh, yeah, as far as Aliens goes, I mean, what more can be said about it? It's, it's one of the most iconic uh, performances in an action film ever, be it female or not. It's just, it's a masterful performance and uh, basically a genre masterpiece of action and horror mixed. It, it's a phenomenal film. 
but yeah, let's go ahead and just repeat our titles real quick for everybody out there, uh, in case you might have missed them. Uh, Adam, go ahead and start with uh, just repeat the title. Uh, I had Cabin in the Woods for the good, and for the bad, I had the Netflix series The Defenders. For my good, I had The Ice Storm, and for my bad, I had Ghostbusters 2. And for my good, I had Aliens, and my bad, I had Snow White, A Tale of Terror. And we're going to go ahead and start heading out of here, Uh, so uh, we'll go ahead and start thanking some people and doing our picking at the end for next week's episode, as we usually do, so stay tuned for that. But first, uh, thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Christian Tharlally for our artwork. Uh, follow him at Night of Water on various socials. That's Night with a K underscore of underscore water for all sorts of great stuff. And uh, thanks to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all get access to the to vote in polls for individual movies and topics that we cover, and also bonus podcasts, which we should shout out, Adam. Uh, we recently recorded the one for December, our top 10 directors of all time, and we'll just say um, it's a pretty long one. I think it's the longest podcast in any variation other than a commentary that you and I have done, just the two of us. Well, just the two of us, yeah. right. Uh, as opposed to like the March Madnesses and stuff, which have gone yeah, yeah, yeah. very much longer right on the Patreon. But yeah, that's definitely one of the longer ones we've ever done for the show. So uh, stay tuned to that by the end of the month. Um, and we also want to thank, of course, our guest Addison. Thank you so much for being on the show. Go ahead and plug yourself. Where can people find you on the internet? And what projects do you have uh, to recommend to the people out there that you're involved in? I mean, I'm just on, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just all Addison Binnick, you know, nothing fancy or anything like that. And uh, I just recently released a project called Magnum Opus, the movie, which was a 63 minute long compilation of footage that I dug out from the archives. You know, this stuff is dates all the way back to 2002, some of it. And it chronicles about 15 years of my and my friends lives from about 2002 until about 2017 of, you know, being obsessed with Jackass and Tom Green and early MTV's style, you know, comedy programming, one stunt and skit after the next. And it's all, you know, various media. It was VHS, mini DV, high eight, and then culminates in digital HD at the end. So you can see all of us, you know, when we're about 12, and then ends when we're about 27, 28. Um, so in an hour, you watch us grow over the course of 15 years. I'm really proud of it. And it's definitely something that if people are a fan of Jackass or Tom Green, then they might get a kick out of that. And I sell copies of that on eBay. And I'm going to start bringing copies to conventions and stuff pretty soon. Yeah, I was fortunate enough. Uh, you sent me a screener of it and I got to watch it. And uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I think you hit it right on the head. If people like Jackass, Tom Green, early MTV comedy, at the very least, you're going to get some laughs out of it. Love it or hate it, it's going to entertain you in a way. Uh, I I think it's really, really good. Thank you. So far, the people who I've sent screeners to or who have been getting their Blu-rays, they seem to like it. Unless everybody's being nice, they seem to really dig it. So that makes me happy. Well, yeah, definitely check him out on all those places and check out his new movie. Um, and uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at DEDBpod. And uh, you can also submit feedback to us, uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And uh, for more of me, you can find me on Twitter and letterboxes at NotTheWho'sTommy. And you also do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. And you can find me on Instagram 
at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. I'm also on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. And uh, for more of our audio antics, uh, follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you want to listen to all the other great shows on the network. And you can also dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for like 200 episodes or so before we ever join Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't uh, support us on the Patreon for the $1, that's cool. Money can always be tight. But the completely free way to help us out is to just simply rate, review, or share the show around because that gets us more visibility out there. Yeah. Motherfuckers. <laughs> and now it's time uh, we end the show with doing our picking uh, for next week's episode, uh, which, as we do at the end of every episode, uh, Adam and I each have either two good or two bad movies. We switch off on the quality for that. And we assign them between one and ten for our choices and uh, that ends up getting us you know the other person or a guest like Addison in this case will be picking numbers between 1 and 10 for our choices so where if Addison will say like oh I'm going to pick number 8 and then you know Adam will say okay that's closest to number 10 which is this particular movie so that gets us the good and the bad feature but keep in mind we do have the Godfather rule where um, we were given vetoes to use uh, by uh, next May for our next anniversary. And uh, I've already used mine, but Adam has his, so if he hears one of my two good choices for this topic, uh, he could potentially say, like, you know what, I don't want to cover that choice, so actually I'll take the cannoli, and thus uh, that particular choice is gone, and we have to go with whatever other choice is there. And uh, yeah, for uh, this next episode we're doing uh we are in honor of the whale is getting wider releases out there and this guy's been having a bit of like comeback of sorts uh mr brendan frazier will be our topic for next week which i'm excited to do i've always been a big fan of frazier even when his career took certain downturns mainly because of stuff that was unfortunately out of his control um i have always been a fan of that guy yeah man me too brendan frazier is one of those guys you always want to see uh succeed so uh yeah for sure yes yes and uh you have the two bad for this, I have the two good. So, like I said, Addison, uh, you'll pick a number between 1 and 10 for both our choices. So, please, for my two good ones, pick a number between 1 and 10. I'm going to go with 6. Okay. Number 6 is very close to uh, number 8, uh, where I had um, a choice that I think has kind of gotten, you know, forgotten in the big stream of, like, Brendan Fraser various vehicles that came out in the late 90s. But I think it's uh, quite fun. I have a blast from the past. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. All right. I'm not going to take the cannoli on it. I've only seen this once, and I don't remember if I liked it or not. Oh, wow. No, I'm surprised. That's a a really fun one. The cast is good. Christopher Walken's in that, right? Doesn't he play his father? Yes, right. He's, He's very fun. Yeah, that's a fun one. Yes. Um, though on the other side of things, at number two, I had probably what most people would sort of define, like especially the action Brendan Fraser uh, milestone as. I have uh, 1999's The Mummy, which of course, I mean, we all love The Mummy. My bisexual candy movie. <laughs> Absolutely. That's true. I mean, look, him and Rachel Weiss. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a, it's a oh, smorgasbord. Oh, God, Odette Fair. Everybody in that movie. You're like, yeah, everybody. Right, that's true. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone's pretty hot in that movie. I mean, Benny, the hottest of all. Betty and Jonathan. Ooh, daddy. <laughs> Get together. <laughs> well, uh, for Adam's two bad choices now, Addison, please pick a number between one and ten. Uh, let's go with three. Uh, at three, right on the dot. Funny how this works out. We have the mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Oh. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Oof. There's a lot, though. Yeah. There's a lot to discuss with that one. There uh, is. There's a lot. <laughs> 
Yeah. And then on the other side, at number seven, I had a movie that I've never been a fan of. I think, I know there's some people who like it, and I think there's okay bits in it, but I had Bedazzled. Oh, I like that one too. It's been a long time since I've seen Bedazzled. Yeah, I remember liking bits and pieces of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Mommy Tomb of the Dragon Emperor and Blast from the Past, we'll be talking about next time. Uh, but until then, everybody, by Grabthar's Hammer. This podcast episode will end. Cool. <laughs>